In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Sir James Martin is as awkward as he is wealthy, and he's looking for a wife, and he's trying to impress this young woman named Frederica. And I'm going to show you a scene that you've seen before. It's from a a, a Witt Stillman film from a few years ago called Love and Friendship. And um, Frederica is the daughter of a widow, so her mother is trying to find her a match. Meanwhile, Sir James Martin is trying to impress himself with Frederica. And in this moment, he is uh, encountering her, and you will discover just how pathetically awkward he is. But in the course of this brief exchange, the Bible will come into view. Excuse me, Frederica. When I came down this morning, I I couldn't help but notice you were reading a book. Which book was that? This volume of Cooper's verse. Cooper, the poet. He, He also writes verse. Most impressive. Yes, he's versatile that way. So, Frederica, you, you read both verse and poetry. In this, I believe, you take after your mother, who knows a great many things. Just yesterday, she cited to me a story from the Bible about a very wise king. This reminded me of many such uh, accounts one learns in childhood. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the Twelve Commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. Twelve Commandments? Mm. Excuse me, but uh, I believe there were only ten. Really? Only ten must be obeyed. Excellent! Well, then, which which two to take off? Perhaps the one about the Sabbath. I prefer to hunt. Well... After that, it becomes tricky. Many of the thou shalt nots, don't murder, uh, don't covet thy neighbor's house or wife, one simply wouldn't do anyway, (laughs) because they are wrong. Whether the Lord allows us to take them off or not. Poetry and verse. What a poet. That's hilarious, right? Okay, but let's be honest. Um, He's us. We're talking about the Ten Commandments for the next ten weeks, of all things. And I wonder whether we give much thought to them. Whether we could recite them, like, go. In what order? And... In the same way, he doesn't even know the scope of what the Ten Commandments are. You, you get the sense that those commandments, whatever they might be, are really kind of in the way. <laughs> a little bit of burden, maybe kind of a, um, a constraint upon my happiness. And there's not really any interest in it. And I, I think, I dare say it's possible that maybe we think of the Ten Commandments similarly. No, not identically. We don't really know what the scope of it is, and maybe we feel like they're just sort of things that are in the way, they don't fit, and if we could take any of them off, we would. We would omit any number of them if we could. 
It's the nature of things. It's the way we think about it. We're, for the next 10 weeks, going to take one commandment each week, one at a time. And we are tempted to think here at the beginning that the Ten Commandments are just kind of like a manual. Like, here you go, checklist, check it off each time. But from the context that you're about to hear as we read the Ten Commandments again, I think it would be better to think of the Ten Commandments, which is actually translated as ten words. It's more like when a husband and wife are standing at the altar and they're making vows to one another. What's going in in that moment are two people that are making commitments to one another to do the things that lead to the flourishing of a covenantal relationship. So in that sense, they're not like, here's your rules, do this. Instead, these are the things that lead to life. Life in the fullness that it was intended. And that's how you and I need to think of it. We hear commandments and we think constraint. But I think what we're going to find as we go through these 10 weeks that these commandments are commitments that lead to life. That's what we're calling the series. Life in just 10 words. That's where we're going. And this morning we're going to talk about the first commandment by which all the other commandments hang together and if you break any of the other ones, you've already broken the first one. And we're going to be really simple about this. It may not be easy to do it, but it isn't complicated. So we're going to consider the first commandment and each commandment on three headings. What does this commandment mean? Why does this commandment even matter? And, and then thirdly, how do we begin or begin again to live into it? We're going to pair each week the commandment with the New Testament text as well that we think complements what we find there. So we're in Deuteronomy. We'll start in chapter 4. I wonder if you might stand. We'll start there. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Ermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, you shall learn them. Be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you didn't go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then in the book of Romans, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Uh, Charlton Heston comes down from Sinai and presents the two tablets, or uh, Mel Brooks in The History of the World uh, comes down from the mountain and holds the three tablets, and he says, I have the 15, the 15, and then he drops one tablet and it smashes to the ground. He goes, sorry, 10, 10 commandments, right? That's all in the book of Exodus. That's when it first happens. If you were listening closely, you notice that this is the iteration of the, of the commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally means second law. Not a replacement of the first one, but a restatement and an elaboration on it. The Ten Commandments here are just restating what they've already heard. And you may ask yourself, why? Because God is a parent. And every parent knows the kids never hear it the first time. Tell me I'm wrong. What's happened between then and then? Exodus, they've just been liberated from Egypt. Now here again... They're hearing the commandments again right before they're on the cusp of entering the land. You hear all of those references to geography here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And that's because, here's the question. As God sings with Woody Guthrie, this land is my land, this land is your land, right? You're about to enter the land. What must you commit yourself to in order to find the flourishing of it is in that centering of my place in the land? What must you commit yourself to if you would know the fullness of what I intend for you as a people of a family of nations who will bless every family of the world in this land I'm giving you? What will it be? These commandments. Now, early on in the biblical storyline, land, really important. The, kind of the center of attention in a lot of ways. As the biblical storyline has progressed, geography is not nearly as important as being centered in him. And so if you want to kind of update the understanding of what's being said there in Deuteronomy 4 to our moment, what does it mean for you to live in the fullness of the center of the Lord's will, these commandments? And these ten commandments begin with one commandment, the first commandment. And there's an order to it, and the order matters. And before, though, we even get into the substance of that commandment and what does it mean, the Lord establishes a premise, a basis, a ground, an explanation about why this commandment is in effect. And he tells us two things about himself to explain why this first commandment is the only logical response that Israel has unto the Lord. And you hear it in verse 6. For I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Two things that God discloses about himself in order to explain why the first commandment is in fact the first commandment. One, his identity across eternity, and two, his intervention in history. Take that first one first, his identity in eternity. Who is he? I am the Lord, your God. Whenever you see Lord capitalized, it's the reference to the word I am. I am he. I am that I am. It is the name that God discloses to who? To Moses at Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is where in Exodus 3, Moses shows up, and he hears a voice, you're on holy ground, take your sandals off. 
It's like Elizabeth Barrett Browning says in her famous poem, right? Earth crammed with heaven, every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes, the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Blackberries are great. Blackberries are choice. Blackberries are succulent. But oh my gosh, everything is holy now. To borrow a line from a song. Holiness all around you, and we have to be aware of it, lest we miss the fullness of what is there. And the Lord, for the sake of Moses and for the sake of Israel, is saying, do you understand where you are? Do you understand whose presence you're in? In that moment, God is out to disclose to himself that he is real, that he is personal, that he is holy, and that he is powerful. If that bush can burn without being consumed, that God has a few tricks up his sleeve. And therefore, in that moment, the reason why the commandment is the commandment and the logical response to the commandment is for his, his authority, his identity that has been for all time. He is not content simply to say, just because I am, this is what follows. There's a second thing you hear in that disclosure in verse 6. I am the God who brought you up out of the house of Egypt out of the house of slavery. If you were with us last week, as we finished up our consideration of the ministry of Elijah, we made one claim that the, the through line, the storyline, the motif of all scripture is that God is one who has come to free us. God is about the business of liberation in manifold ways. And in this moment, God is out to remind Moses and out to ground his commandments in this fact. You are dead you were, you were enslaved, and I have come to free you. Moses wouldn't even be having this conversation with the Lord. Israel wouldn't even be having this understanding of what God's commandments for his people would be unless God has freed them. If God had not freed them from physical slavery in Egypt, it would be all Yul Brenner. You may make bricks without straw. That would have... That would. <laughs> so it shall be written, so it shall be done. Right? It'd be all that. But God has intervened. God has gotten his hands dirty. God is involved. God has come to free. That's what he discloses about himself in order to establish the basis for calling Israel to one thing. Verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. You will literally before, like, if you're like the, this is in front of me and in no way does it really obscure your view of me, but if I got down really close, you couldn't see me because something would be in front of me. It would be before me. God is saying, you put nothing in front of me. You make no substitute for who I am. You put nothing in front of you that will draw your attention away, that will distract me, distract you from me, that will obscure your view of me, that will distort your perception of me. Nothing. I will not have it. Next week, we'll hear in the second commandment about how God is a jealous God. And we'll say, well, wow, gosh, are you insecure? Oh, no. You will put nothing in front of me. There is plenty of things to enjoy in this world, plenty of things to enjoy and pursue and protect and defend. But everything that those things are, are from his hand. And that's the thing that he's trying to get across. It's just that it. It's from his hand. It originates in him. And, and it's to our peril that we forget any of that. Now that's all great. And that all sounds like, yeah, I would expect to hear that on a Sunday morning from a sermon. Let's, how do you know 
if maybe something has come in the way of a substitute for the Lord. Um, before I get all theological with you, I'm going to get really raw with you. And, and speaking of raw, I want to I let you listen to about two minutes of a comedian named Norm MacDonald, which, caveat emptor, that dude um, was, could go off, I'm just saying, you should do your homework. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you talk about, you go, oh my, ha, la, 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 la. But this man wrestled with Jesus. And this man spoke openly about trying to figure out what does it mean to follow him. Even though there's plenty of things he talked about that's like, did you miss the part about holiness? But in this moment, this brief interview, he talks about what does it mean to grapple with your mortality? What does it mean to think about the end of your life and, and consequently, how do you think about the life that you still have? Just, just listen to two minutes of him being very honest on a talk show about life and happiness or the lack thereof. <laughs> the end of life. <laughs> so, you're, so you're saying in your real life, though, you've just told yourself... There's no point in fretting about an in inevitability. Well, I, I, no, I try. Are you successful at that? No, I'm not successful. I just try to tell myself that, but in the deep of night, it's, that's when it hits. Yeah, that's not fun. And uh, like, like my worst moments in life is when I get up late at night and go in the bathroom and turn the light on and look at my eye, look into my own eyes. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I, but I try to, you know, you try to keep it at bay. You try to keep all those thoughts at bay. And uh, like in a sense, like that, uh, that's, what, that's why I think like routine is important. I, I have a job where like there's not routine. You have to self-impose routine. But uh, I think that... To me, like the key to unhappiness is like just indulgence. Like with anything, if you indulge in in, in sex or in alcohol or in drugs or in um, video game, it doesn't matter. If you indulge in things, you're not happy. And I think like our previous generation, they never indulged in anything. Like my dad worked all day, and then he'd have a couple beers and I'm sure those beers were were uh, tasted really good to him and his vacations as modest as they were probably had great value <clears throat> we uh, we indulge ourselves more and then the generation that follows us <clears throat> really indulge themselves and I, I don't know to me I think that's where you get unhappy when you start indulging that's the key to unhappiness what am I talking about <laughs> Yeah, that's a nervous chuckle. If, if we're saying that these commandments are the way to life and, and life in its fullness, then, then there might be moments of great joy and goodness in that life when you follow that way. And therefore, the absence of those constraints, that indulgence of which he speaks, well, that's a recipe for unhappiness. So if I might clarify that in a, maybe a more theological frame of reference, there's a Methodist theologian by name of Thomas Oden, who said this, um, you, one has a God when a finite value is adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. If you are constantly grumpy, uh-oh, you might ask yourself why. If there are things about you where you are just totally irritated, you might ask yourself why. Now, let's be very clear. There are 
plenty of moments in which joylessness is a reality because you are up against circumstances that are just too hard. Things that you are confronting or being confronted with, burdens that you are bearing, yes, it's hard to be happy. Certainly not casting shade on you in that respect. But there are other ways of life to which Norm MacDonald is pointing in which we have gone after so much and we have made so much of some things that are of finite value, no wonder we're not happy. It's because we've taken a finite thing and treated it as if it were infinite. And that's what gets us then, if that's the meaning of what it means to have no other gods before me, to put nothing that is finite as if it were infinite, we probably ought to talk ourselves, ask the question then, well, well, why does that matter? I mean, that's all very interesting and it's very top line. Why do we need to believe that you shall have no other gods before me? I don't remember which philosopher of the Enlightenment had said it, but he says if there was no God, we would have to invent him. Because as Dostoevsky's, Dostoevsky's uh, character, Ivan Karamazov, says, if there is no God, then everything is pretty much permissible. You know, there's nothing off limits. There's nothing out of bounds. And that is not to say that if you're an atheist, you can't be moral. Some of the most moral people I know are atheistic through and through. The problem is, whatever moral intuitions you have, if you start telling people you ought to live and love this way, they will look at you and you go, and they'll say to you, Why? Why should I? If there's nothing bigger than my own sense of right and wrong, like Adrian Brody, me, what happens when your version of right and wrong collides with my nose? Why does it matter that we might say that there you shall have no other gods before me? Because if you don't have something, you're going to have to come up with a substitute. Good luck. But if I might kind of narrow the, the scope of that question to just two really brief thoughts from C.S. Lewis. He had a few things to say about why God is real and why we should consider it. And the first has to do with um, the limitations of whatever else that you might choose to be your substitute. He, he says this in one of his essays. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, the hotels, the scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. What does he mean? There's all sorts of things in this world that you might properly delight in, which ground you and, and animate you and deploy you in ways that provide you great satisfaction. But, but Lewis is at least trying to be honest with the, those things notwithstanding. They have limitations. And the sooner that you and I can grapple with their limitations, the, the more likely that we will not turn them into something that they have never been intended to be. They do not qualify as substitutes for the God who is calling us to put no other gods before him. And, but the second thought that C.S. Lewis offers is not only that there are limitations in whatever else that we might choose as a substitute for him, but there's actually something that happens to those things if we start to turn them into something more than what they are. This is a famous essay. I've shared with you it before. It's from an essay called First and Second Things. 
And he says this, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life, who does that, loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It's a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her. And what happens? You know, it may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. All right, that's long, that's thick, that's heady. What does he mean? You take anything that you love and try to make it some substitute for God, you are actually taking something away from your enjoyment of it. You are, it's actually counterproductive to try to enjoy it to the degree that it was never intended. You are taking away from it in ways that it was perfectly good and, and, offer, and, and, and able to provide you something good. But if you make it more than what it was, if you make it into anything else beyond what it was intended, you actually diminish it. That's why the Lord is saying, you don't have any other gods before me. Nothing else qualifies, and anything else you try, you have just shot yourself in the foot. These first four commandments could be summarized under this heading. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that begins by saying, you're it. You're the one God. Folks, um, this is not simply calling us to be compliant or to put our heads down and just do what we're told and never ask any questions. To find God as worthy and great and glorious and worthy of submission is at the same time to find him beautiful in ways that we find the artwork out in the gallery beautiful. So if that's what the meaning of the commandment is, and now we've kind of begun to establish why that matters, the question is, how do we live into it? And, and I want to kind of help begin to steer this plane towards the landing by appealing to a voice um, that I'll be honest, when I heard that he died back in the early 2000s, I wept because he had formed my childhood, and his name is Mr. Rogers. And, and in this interview that he does um, in 1987, remember this date, because he has just written a book about parenting, but listen to what in some ways drove him to write the book that he did, and remember, this is 1987. There were no personal computers in 1987, right? I don't remember. Yeah, there was. There was an Apple IIe. I had one of those. Listen to what he said to Charlie Rose in 1987. I'm very concerned that our society is much more interested in information than wonder, in noise rather than silence. How do we do that? I mean, in our business, yours and mine, how do we encourage reflection? I trust that this book will do some of that. But, oh my, this is a noisy world.
That's 1987. If he were alive today, he might be tempted to punch King Friday the 13th in the nose. He's so frustrated by what we've done. He would never do that. Everything in his mind in those 30 seconds has been inverted. Information has become greater than wonder. Noise has become greater than silence. Stimulation has become greater than reflection. And he says, it's, it's dangerous. It's, it's counterintuitive. It's actually not nourishing. And, and so what I think if you were to, if you were to boil down um, what he's, he's getting at that moment is he's saying, don't settle for information. You were made for wonder. Don't settle for stimulation and for noise. You were made for reflection. And, and you hear a, a voice like that, and look, uh, call me biased if you will, but if you don't hear the kind of ministerial background that's kind of being intimated there, you're not listening. The dude's an ordained Presbyterian minister. And I think if you were to adapt that line into what is the takeaway from this first commandment, it is this. Don't settle for mere obedience. You were made for communion. And I don't mean narrowly communion about which we're to participate. I'm talking more broadly about a whole quality of relationship with God. You might hear these commandments and you might hear everything else that Jesus says or what the Bible says about what we ought to do and you, just, you hear the commandment and, and you know what you're tempted to become. You're, you're tempted to become an Uber Eats driver for God. You know, not to diss on anybody that's an Uber Eats driver, if that's, all, if that's the only job out there, you give thanks that you got that job in the gig economy for however long that lasts. But the Uber Eats driver, he gets the signal on his phone. He, okay, go, I go to Farmburger, I grab the bag, I take it to the house. They give me a really, um, you know, chintzy tip. But I did my job, right? I, I followed the protocol. I did everything they said. And I might still give thanks that I have a job, but in the, on the whole of things, it's kind of like, you know, I just did my thing. If you think that's what it means to follow the Lord your God and have no other gods before me, you will die on the vine. Do not settle for mere obedience. You were made for communion. To relate to him in such a way that your reflection upon who God is has an effect on you inwardly. That then spills over into your outward affections. Tim Keller has been fighting cancer for a couple years. Some of you are very familiar with that. Some of you know that story. He gave an interview last month with Mike Cosper in which he was very frank about what has helped him in this season. And he, and he went back and read an ancient tome by John Owen called Communion with God. And he said, that's been the grist for my fight. And I read that book in seminary, and I went out and pulled out my essay from what I wrote it 20 years ago, and it had all the endearment of, you know, writing a chemistry paper. <laughs> but in that 250-page book, John Owen kind of riffs on one verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which we're going to read as our benediction. And, and, and you and I will hear it, and you, and you hear words of benedictions at the end of the service, and you think it's, yeah, 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 we've got to just sort of sincerely yours. Are you sincere? You know, blah, 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 here's the verse, let's go. But, friends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You could sit with that all afternoon and draw out richness from it that might attend to what it means to commune with the Lord. 
That to think about God is to think about his love that has always moved first. It was never impressed with you first. He moved first and his love is unchanging. The grace of the Lord Jesus, his blood accomplished more for you than anything else you might ever accomplish or anything else that might anybody accomplish for you. And you are adopted and you belong to him by what he did. And the Holy Spirit is there to console you, to offer you consolation that you have been adopted by him and that you belong to him. And somehow, when we displace the noise and we make room for the attention and we begin to reflect on those ideas, what it means to have communion with God is to be affected by those ideas in such a way that it leads to praise, it leads to rest, it leads to desiring to do His will, and it leads to a revulsion, a, 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 a bad taste in your mouth about offending Him. That's communion. It's, it's not complicated. But it is that inward processing in you. Look, God reminds Israel that I brought you out of the house of slavery. But in the New Testament, friends, there is one theme that is as prominent as any, and it's this. You're enslaved. You're enslaved to your passions. You're enslaved to corruption and impurity. You're enslaved to lawlessness. And that all leads to being enslavement to sin, Jesus says. And when you begin to reckon with that, the author of Hebrews says you are enslaved to your fear of death. And a lot of people who are afraid of death, you know what they do? I'm going to find a way to make me feel like I'm not regretful. So I'm going to do everything I can to make me sort of acceptable in my own sight or with the universe. And that's in its own form of enslavement. Good luck. The gospel of Jesus Christ says to you, I have come to free you from your corruptions, from your guilt, from your passions, from your impurity, from your fear of death, and from everything that you think you can do to earn a seat at my table, which you can't. And that's why I said it last week, but because God is a parent, we repeat things for us all because we don't hear them the first time. Here's that line from Stephanie Phillips, who's a dentist, who said this, I think true freedom feels like relief. Really, from having to protect ourselves, to exonerate ourselves, to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves. I am not the judge, wrote Karl Barth. Jesus Christ is the judge. The matter is taken out of my hands, and that means liberation. Freedom feels like relief, and it looks like, I think, very much like love. Meditate on that passage this afternoon. Until, with the help of the Spirit, perhaps you find rest. Perhaps you feel motivated to praise. Perhaps you recommit yourself to do as his will or to repent of what you know is not. That's why we come to the table. It's not just a ritual. It's meant to feed us. And so one of those good poets that does poetry and verse, I will close, that prepares us for this table and calls us to communion. Since you were not bashful to break the bread, Sown in the barren of seedless wheat, since you did not shirk from feeding the dead, I too, Kyrie, will eat. And as you were bold to spill the glass, fermented in groves of hematic wine, though the sanguine liquid is no demitas, that sweat and blood will be mine. So as you arose in bread without yeast, with the vision of me in your eyes, we will drain that cup at our marital feast, and I, for you, will rise. Let's pray. Father, I 
I know it is true of me, and maybe it's true of many of these, that to sit quietly in a room is uh, at times far from a place of rest, but a place of agitation, if only because I am an overstimulated soul. And yet, as uh, Brother Rogers says, there is something more to be found in that stillness and in that reflection, namely the communion with you that will hold us in our darkest moments, but also soften us in our most self-hating moments. Father, help us to be quiet, but not just find an empty mind, but to fill it with what is meant to feed. And now would you feed us by this that you have taught us and called us to do, commanded us even. In Jesus' name, amen.